There really should be no question. There is actually so much, as you can imagine, what the week has presented to us, uh, both uh, certainly difficult and painful and heart-wrenching and anxious images that have been brought before our eyes. But there's only two things I want to talk about. I want to talk about the two big problems that I see. One, I'm going to talk about very, very briefly, because it is a book unto itself. And then the second, what I want to talk about, is what we talk about when we talk about Israel to our children and our friends and our business associates and whatnot. Okay, so here goes the first. There are actually two events that occurred in Israel over this past week. Most people looked at the images of the bombs raining down, the rockets raining down on Israel as the great threat to the existence of the state, and it is unquestionably a profound threat, but the second thing actually is the greater threat. And that is throughout some Israeli cities, in Batyam and in Lud and in Akko and in Yafo, in places, in short, where there are mixed communities of Arabs and Jews, that there were images of violence and lynching of small outbreaks of a very uncivil war between these two communities. Israel, like many multi-ethnic societies, always teeters a little bit on the edge of disharmony. Certainly, you don't have to look very far in the world to see examples of this. Canada certainly is no exception to this with our aboriginal population. In the United States, racial tensions between African Americans and white Americans is unquestionably well documented. Throughout the rest of the world, there are many, many examples of this. There are the Basques in Spain, for example. There are the Scottish and the, uh, and the Irish in the British Empire. There are lots of examples of multi-ethnic societies that have simmering on the surface all the time. But what we saw this past week, of course, was not just simmering. It was where things boiled over. And the violence really came to a point that was profoundly disheartening because Israel had reached what we believe to have been an exceptional moment in its history where Arab political participation in the democratic process was at an all-time high. Don't forget that what apparently was to be the incoming government was going to have an Arab party as one of its coalition partners. Israel, over the past six, seven months, have signed a number of uh, peaceful agreements with local Arab countries. I mean, these were remarkable achievements in a very short span of time and it boded very well over a general atmosphere of conviviality amongst Jewish Israelis and Arab Israelis that maybe something was turning a quarter. The economy was doing very well, which means everyone had a very good standard of living. The per capita income in Israel is higher than in Canada. People have we're enjoying a very good standard of living. So what went wrong? Lots of, ex lots of answers. I want to give you the big one. In my opinion, and once again, it's my opinion. Over the past four years, as the diminishing political power of the current Israeli Prime Minister, Bibi Netanyahu, he has sought increasingly to look to the fringes of the right-wing elements of Israeli society to bolster his grip on power. And by right-wing fringes, I mean exactly 
the right-wing fringes of Israeli society. Which is a cautionary tale, I think, to any political movement in the world and those who control power politically in the world. And that is when you dance with crazy people to keep yourself in power, it's very hard making an argument that the people who oppose you shouldn't dance with crazy people too. The overwhelming majority of all the people who live in Israel, like everywhere pretty much else in the world, the overwhelming majority of Israeli Arabs and Israeli Jews seek commonality, conviviality, peace and tranquility. They want to build their homes, raise their children and live freely and safely. But what we also saw this past week is that it doesn't take very many people to turn that all over. Some of the blame and the details of which I'm not going to go into this morning, some of this blame and the exact proportionate of it, uh, elements of it, I'm not going to go into this morning either. But some of this blame is squarely at the feet of the interim prime minister because of the people that he has chosen to dance with. Because the morality of how you govern is no less important than the structure of how you govern. The raison d'etre that makes the argument that you're the right people to be in charge is more important than the budgets you pass. In simple political scientific terms, it is called legitimacy. And in order to gain legitimacy, you can do one of two things. You can have a police state where you scare everyone into doing what you think you want them to do, or you can achieve a moral position where people roundly can agree that this is the right thing to do. Israel, to my abiding optimism, will find itself once again in the place where overwhelmingly people recognize the high moral ground it dreams of being at and the ground that it will once again get itself to. The second point. The second point for this morning, of course, is the rocket attacks. And I'm not going to go into all the stuff that you can read in the newspaper and watch in the news. I'm not going to waste your time on that because certainly your time is valuable. I caught over this past week a, uh, a short eight-minute rant that came by way of The Daily Show, the host, Trevor Noah. And uh, in his eight minutes, he managed, I think, to present to the world that at least was watching him of all the things that people misunderstand about the conflict that's going on. And of course, the twisted and frightening thing about this is, is that Trevor Noah, by going on national TV and giving this eight-minute rant, most probably is representing the way that most people think. And additionally, the kinds of attitudes and reports and thinking that many of our children and grandchildren, in fact, are witness to and affected by and perhaps even oppressed by. And so we need to ask ourselves, how do we talk about this with our children and our grandchildren? How do you talk about it with your neighbors? How do you talk about it in general? And if all of that doesn't apply to you, perhaps the most important question is, how do you talk about it to yourself? Because we're all consuming the same news for the most part, and you're all seeing the same things on TV. So I've taken the, uh, the liberty of printing out some of his comments. If you haven't seen it, after Shabbat, you might want to just do a little
Google search after Shabbat, a little Google search, Trevor Noah, Israel, Palestine, it'll come up. It's about eight minutes and 20 seconds, but here goes. He started off by saying this. He said, even saying the sentence, Israel, Palestine, means I'm losing followers online and I'm on the verge of being blocked in all social media and in life, he begins, that is how contentious this topic is. Stop. That already has profound anti-Semitic notions to it. That somehow the media is going to abuse him and disuse him because he said something or is about to say something inflammatory about Jews in the state of Israel. But guys, he says, we have to talk about it. Because this is the, one of the most difficult stories that, have is, that has existed in our lifetime. One of the most difficult stories of our lifetime? Really? Now, I just made a small list here. Perhaps you can add some to yourself. The Second World War, the threat of nuclear annihilation, climate change, the tens of millions of people who die from cancer and heart disease, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the over 50-year Chinese oppression of Tibet, the Chinese imprisonment and enslavement of the Uyghurs, millions of people this past year dead from COVID, and yet Trevor Noah thinks that this is one of the most important and difficult stories of our lifetime? Really? You know that in uh, Israel, that there are more journalists per capita than anywhere else in the world? Nigeria, which is one of the poorest countries in the world, by the way, do you know how many reporters Nigeria sends to Israel? Four. Nigeria doesn't have a reporter in Paris, but they have four reporters in Israel. The overemphasis, the overattention that people pay to the state of Israel and any of the conflicts that go on in the state of Israel, we must roundly confirm and agree is so overwhelmingly outside of proportion to what it actually is. It is beyond comprehension that Nigeria has four reporters in a country that is the size of Long Island. It is nine miles wide, 120 miles long. And four reporters? Why do you think that's so? Why do you think that's so? Why would Trevor Noah, the host of a very popular and he's very well paid program on TV? And he's what makes the Israel-Palestine such a difficult topic to even broach is all the layers that people pack into it. No matter how much you try to break it down, he said, people are always going to say that you're leaving out some crucial piece of context. And you know what? You're probably right, he said. The origin of blame and conflict shifts depending on the timeline he had it going back and forth. And then he says, I don't want to have that argument and the noise that goes back and forth on this thing because honestly, I don't know any TV show in 10 minutes that's going to come close to solving the problem. 10 minutes isn't even enough to explain Mortal Kombat conflict. So I'm not even going to come and do that. Now, he said he wasn't going to do it, but he did do it. Instead, Trevor Noah poses a different question. In Gaza, he said, Israeli airstrikes have reportedly killed, as of that time, 28 people, including 10 children. 
He forgot to admit that most, at that point, of the deaths and casualties that occurred in Gaza were a result of the, of the rockets that Hamas had shot that misfired and hit their own people. But that aside, over 150 people had been wounded. In Israel, Hamas rockets at that time killed two people. And this exchange of fire comes after the Israeli assault on the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem that left more than 600 Palestinian protest protesters and worshippers injured. So what happened? You all heard the term Sheikh Jarrah, the neighborhood in Jerusalem? Those homes in Sheikh Jarrah were owned by Jews in 1948, before the war broke out. When Israel lost control of that part of Jerusalem in 1948, it went to Jordan. Arab Palestinians moved into those homes. When Israel recaptured the back part of the city, the eastern part of the city, they then began starting in 1972, a process through the courts for those Jewish families to reassert their original title on the properties. And in the end, a few weeks ago, when the Israeli court ruled, finally, and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the original Jewish landowners, you know what they said? They said that if the Palestinians, the Arabs, are prepared to pay minimal rent, they will not be evicted from the homes and they can stay there in perpetuity. That the court, while allowing for that the titles didn't belong to them but belonged to someone else, still gave them the right to stay in there on condition that they pay rent. That is what ignited all of this in part. The events of what happened with this neighborhood and then the protests and then the bombs and the rockets is perhaps better understood with his final statement. He says, personally, I can't watch this footage and see those numbers and see a fair fight. Given that Israel has one of the most sophisticated missile systems in the world, Noah then poses what he calls an honest question. If you're in a fight where the other person can't beat you, how hard should you retaliate when they try to hurt you? All I'm asking, he said, is when you have this much power, what is your responsibility? That's a great question. What is Israel's responsibility? The responsibility of every sovereign state since the beginning of time when they had sovereignty in states is that they must protect the life, body, and property of the citizens of their country, plain and simple. What should Israel do? Well, the fact of the matter is Hamas is the only Arab political Palestinian organization today of any note that openly engages in the idea that Palestinians can overthrow the state of Israel and all move back there. They're the only ones. The other Arab countries in the surrounding areas have made peace with them. The PLO, Fatah, made peace with Israel. Hamas, supported by Iran and Hezbollah, they are the only intransigent forces in the world that believe that the state of Israel is illegitimate. And as a result of that, the people, they still they still foist upon them this idea that Israel can be removed and wiped off the face of the earth. It's not certainly a, not a mistake at all that these four Arab countries 
make peace agreements with the state of Israel. And then Hamas begins to launch missile attacks against the state of Israel. It is a deliberate attempt on Hamas to remind the world, at least to keep its agenda on the table, that they are not forgotten. But this is my last point, which is the question that Trevor Noah actually asked. What is Israel supposed to do? What is Israel's responsibility? In life, there are generally two kinds of people. I mean, there are people who are overly aggressive and violent people, okay? But there are people who love peace and there are pacifists. And the idea, of course, on some level, that Jews should be pacifists is a lesson that we have with great difficulty learned over the course of time in history. For myself personally, I'm not a pacifist. I'm not a pacifist because recent history has certainly taught me, as I'm sure all of you, that pacifism doesn't change the world and it doesn't save people's lives. Auschwitz, Majdanek, Treblinka, they weren't liberated by people carrying uh, olive vines and they were chanting peace-loving slogans. You know what liberated Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Majdanek? Allied forces in tanks and with submachine guns. That's the hard truth of this world. And that if it wasn't for the fact that in Israel they have guns, there would either be no Israel or there would be no Jews left in Israel. That is the harsh and difficult truth that we are left with in this world. And it's a painful one as well. It's not happy to say that. But the fact of the matter is also is that while guns are used to protect us, they certain aren't the things that will bring about, about a lasting peace. You need to hold a gun in one hand and an olive branch in the other. Or, as the ancient rabbis once famously said, that when the Jews were sent out into exile and the temple was destroyed, two things came down from heaven. A book, the Torah, and a sword. Which means that you hold the sword in your hand for as long as you have to until you can share the book of peace with other people. I can assure you of this. The difficult images that are flashing on our TV screens and our computer screens, in a few days it will all be passed and the page will be turned to another thing. But the long-term lessons of what this moment has taught us, particularly of what goes on inside of Israel between Jews and Arabs, that's a lesson for us to pay attention to. And God willing, we will learn from it as well. Shabbat shalom, everyone. And please, for us all, a much better week.